Well, thank you for your, uh, for your warm welcome. And it's really, it's really great to be here with you for this weekend. Um, particularly great are breakfasts here, aren't they? Um, I, I, have a few, I have a few other connections with uh, your church through, um, uh, through people. I um, was at Oak Hill with, and he's godfather to my son, and I'm godfather to one of his sons, with Paul Jump who I know is connected with you guys, Paul and Jill, and uh, he's one of my best friends. And in fact, when he preached, uh, I think back in the summer, I, I came to, some, to, to your church um, in the, for the evening service. And I also was at Oak Hill and in the same group as your new vicar, Tom Watts. So I know Tom uh, really well as well. So it's nice, so I'm really glad uh, you know those families. So... We are, um, this weekend, going to be going back 500 years, and uh, we're going to be beginning by going almost exactly back 500 years to um, the autumn of 1517. And um, October the 31st, when um, this German monk called Martin Luther nailed this document, the 95 theses or 95 statements, uh, to his church's notice board, uh, the door of the castle church of Wittenberg in Saxony. And um, an action that's said to have kick-started what is known as, as the Protestant Reformation. Now, I wonder for you, as we start, what comes to mind when you hear um, the Reformation? Perhaps you hated history at school and you know nothing about this stuff and you're not too bothered about whether it stays that way. You know, what on earth does a 500-year-old monk have to say to my modern life? It feels very irrelevant. And I hope to show you, hopefully, that it's not irrelevant. Maybe you think you do know a bit about the Reformation, and you know that it was political. It's to do with Henry VIII, isn't it? Somebody said that to me the other day. Oh, yeah, Henry VIII, isn't it, the Reformation? He took advantage of the upheavals to break with the Roman Catholic Church and start the Church of England, thus enabling him to divorce a wife he didn't at this point feel like decapitating you know that's the reformation isn't it the church you know getting involved with the murky world of politics or perhaps for you the reformation was marked and marred by argument and schism and often violence you know there was persecution uh, heretics burnt at the stake monasteries and religious art destroyed maybe you share the view of the presenter on a recent TV documentary who said this, in many ways the Reformation and the bitterness and division it represents reminds us of the worst aspects of our religious instincts. In other words, you know, religion is a, is a thing of mystery. Claiming to know the truth and challenge other people's perception of the truth only leads to the kind of extremism and barbarism that blights our world. So the Reformation was bad news. Not to mention, you might say, that wasn't the Reformation about archaic medieval religious debates about purgatory and, you know, relics of Joseph's beard and nails from the cross? You know, what on earth does it mean for us? Well, let's have a think. It is true that the Reformation started with a debate about purgatory, which might feel just completely somewhere else. Most people at the time believed in purgatory, a place, um, not a very nice place, place of torment 
to which Christians went at their death to be purged of their sins before moving on to heaven. And the church at the time had some major building projects going on in Rome, and we all know how hard it is to fund building projects. And so a trade had grown up around selling what were called indulgences, promises uh, from the Pope that gave people time off purgatory. So if you were particularly minted, uh, you could buy a plenary or a full indulgence and skip the place altogether. Now Martin Luther in Saxony was particularly provoked by an indulgence salesman called Friar Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel was a real sleazebag. He preached uh, you know, fear-inducing sermons before opening up his suitcase of indulgences with advertising jingles like, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Every year on All Saints Day, or All Hallows Day, November the 1st, a festival of indulgences came to Wittenberg. Actually, Wittenberg in the town church um, had, uh, Frederick the Wise of Wittenberg had collected a huge collection of relics. So he had, you know, you know so relics was anything kind of religious, a, a wisp of hair from Joseph's beard, you know, an, a splinter from the cross, an, a, a, a feather and egg from the Holy Spirit, these kind of things. But you know, they filled the church and you could go and if you venerated a relic, you got something like 100 days off purgatory. So if you spent a whole day in the town church venerating these thousands of relics, you could get you know, several hundreds of thousands of days off purgatory. This kind of trade was going on and the trade in indulgences, letters from the Pope that gave you time off that you could buy. Well, by 1517, Luther had just about had enough of this abuse. And on the eve of the festival, October the 31st, All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, he nailed his 95 statements to the door of the church. And the reason why this begins to be important is that Luther's indignation came from a better understanding of the Bible. Better translations of the Bible were becoming available, partly because of the advent of the printing press, but also because of the rise of an academic movement called humanism. Now, this is very different from modern humanism. This was a, a movement back to rediscovering ancient sources, ancient texts, including the Bible. So the Bible was being taken out of the hands of a corrupt church and being put back into the hands of the people. And Luther's 95 Theses began to represent a challenge to authority, that the church was not the supreme and final authority in matters of faith. Rather, that place belonged to scripture. And so one of the great slogans or rallying cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone as our final authority. The rediscovery of biblical authority, and we'll hear more about that this afternoon. It's also true that Henry VIII did jump on the bandwagon of this protest from which we get the word Protestant against the authority of the church as an opportunity to do his own thing. But there was much, much more going on. Here in England, Thomas Cranmer, who was Henry's Archbishop of Canterbury, he founded the Church of England on the Book of Common Prayer, which was chock full of the new theology of the Reformation. And it marked a, a sea change in the whole way that the church operated. But it wasn't just the church that would be changed by the Reformation, but the entire social order of the Western world 
and in fact the whole world really, that we now know. Listen to this from a Guardian online editorial just a couple of weeks ago, marking 500 years since the Reformation. It said this, no one involved could have imagined the consequences that would flow from the argument Luther started. Consequences that ranged from mass literacy to the emergence of modern nation states to the vast European empires of the 19th century to the modern liberal idea that people exist as individuals before they are part of a society. It led to the emergence of modern banking and gave us the principle of religious tolerance. We'll think more about this tomorrow morning, but the whole way that we think and live and work and care today owes much to the Reformation. And finally, it's true that violence and discord and death were part of the Reformation. And without doubt, leaders of the Reformation were sometimes guilty of acting towards those with whom they disagreed in ways contrary to the gospel that they professed. But the point is that these quarrels were not about small different opinions actually about indulgences or purgatory. It became much more important than that. At the heart of the Reformation was a rediscovery from the Bible of God's revelation for how we can know him and how we can be right with him eternally. And this is not a small thing. If our culture thinks that it is, it shows how totally obsessed with the material and present world our culture is. Because the heart of the Reformation takes us to the very reason why we exist and questions of our eternal well-being. How do we know God and get right with him? This is why people like people gave their lives to speed the Reformation. People like William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English. We'll hear about him this afternoon. It mattered, and it still does matter. A culture that blindly focuses on the material and the now at the expense of the spiritual and the eternal, desperately needs the gospel of the Reformation. And it's precisely because we are a church in a culture that doesn't believe in sin and doesn't value truth and doesn't focus on the eternal that we need to be brought back to the discoveries of the Reformation and to the heart of God in Jesus. So this is where we're going to go. These... Um, things called the five solas. Sola is um, Latin for alone. They're five summaries, mottos, slogans, coined well after the events actually of the 16th century, but that helpfully sum up the key emphases and discoveries of the Protestant Reformation. So I don't know how good your Latin is. I mean, mine's non-existent, but sola gratias, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. Or, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, and the glory of God alone. And over four talks, we'll use these five solas to guide us through some of the history and theology of the Reformation. And we can't say everything, and for the sake of our focus, most of our attention will be on the life and thinking of the person whose actions were said to kickstart the whole thing and mark this 500th anniversary. We'll focus on the very flawed but very great Martin Luther. So, at the heart of the Reformation 
was a rediscovery from the Bible of God's revelation for how we can know him and how we can be right with him eternally. And the theological term for this is justification. That's the word that the Bible uses. How can human beings be justified before God, accepted by him as righteous? And Martin Luther said that justification obviously was the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. And Luther's discovery was that justification um, must be by grace alone and through faith alone. Justification has to be received as a gift. Not something earned, but as a gift. Now really the um, Playmobil video has done it all for us, but let's just review a bit of Martin Luther's life. Um, Martin Luther was born on the 10th of November, 1483, to parents Margaret and Hans Luther. Hans Luther was a copper miner in the little mining town of Eiselben in central Germany. It was quickly realized that Martin had a considerably bigger brain than most, and his father sent him away to study to become a lawyer. There was only one slight concern. Martin was very serious about religion. One day, aged 21, Martin was returning home from university, and he was caught in a storm, and lightning struck only yards from Martin, knocking him off his feet. And fearing for his life, Luther cried out, not directly to God, you didn't do that, but to Saint Anne, the patron saint of copper miners. Saint Anne, save me, and I shall become a monk. Well, Luther was saved through the storm, and much to his father's annoyance, and actually Luther, religious Luther's delight, he became a monk. He loved his monkery, he said. He entered the monastery and he became an Augustinian monk, and he was unbelievably zealous. In fact, he surpassed all others in his observance of fasting and prayer and wearing kind of uncomfortable underwear and confession. Um, Medieval theology taught that only sins that had been confessed could be forgiven. And so Luther would spend literally hours in the confession box, exhausting his confessors, searching his soul for unconfessed sin. They used to say to him, oh, Martin, go away and come back when you've done something really bad. <laughs> but you see, for all his righteous endeavours, Luther could never find any assurance of well-being before God. And when a close friend died and Luther took his funeral, he became terrified of the righteous judgment of God. He could never do enough, he felt. In 1512, aged 26, Luther was sent away, you can imagine why, by his order, you know, to be a lecturer in biblical studies. You know, go and just read the Bible, Martin. And he was sent to become the new lecturer at the new University of Wittenberg. And uh, it was the biggest mistake that the Catholic Church ever made because it was while lecturing on the Psalms and Galatians and particularly Romans that Luther came to a fresh understanding of the gospel. One key moment was Luther's so-called tower experience. It's interesting actually in recent research, this is kind of irrelevant, but the, 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 the word that Luther uses when I was up in my tower could well have been when I was up in my toilet. So anyway, it may have been that he had this... Um, and Luther, he talks a lot about toilet stuff, but, but we won't go there. But Luther, um, he'd been musing on Romans 1, verse 17. 
In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now Luther says he hated this verse. In the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. He said, how could the righteousness of God or the justice of God be gospel? How could the judgment of God be good news? But Luther, as he read on, began to see the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, not simply as a quality of God, but as a gift from God by which we can live. The righteousness of God is the righteousness he gives to us so that we might be righteous before him. Righteousness as a gift that God gives us to clothe us. Now, what did Luther mean and how did he get here? Well, Luther's new insight, new, um, insight came from a new understanding of sin and a new understanding of grace. So let's think about those. A new understanding of sin. Actually, it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't so much a new discovery as actually a rediscovery of something that had been lost. Luther rediscovered the teachings of the 4th century North African bishop and early church father, St. Augustine of Hippo. Remember, he was an Augustinian monk. So this was Augustine's stuff on sin. Now, the medieval view of sin that Luther was kind of in, involved in was that sin was basically a kind of weakness of being, a lack of good, a kind of sickness that needed healing, or a kind of laziness that needed waking up. And I think that's very similar to our culture's view of sin, if it has any, isn't it? That we're, we're a bit bad. We slip up now and again. But it's kind of basically a cosmetic problem. We might need some positive thinking to heal ourselves and become our best self. But that's as far as we'll go with thinking about sin. A guy called a uh, good name Desiderius Erasmus, um, a philosopher from Rotterdam, he was the, the leading humanist scholar of Luther's day. And in his book, um, On the Freedom of the Will, he taught that the problem of sin was basically a problem of spiritual laziness, of sloth. We need God's grace to free our will to please him. Well, Luther discovered, as he returned to the Bible and to Augustine's commentaries, a very different, much deeper and more radical understanding of sin. We read it, didn't we, in Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Luther's rediscovery from the scriptures was that sin was not sickness, but rebellion against God. And the problem of our sin is not cosmetic or surface, but it goes as deep as it possibly can, all the way down to our hearts, shaping what we want and what we love. So Luther answered Erasmus's On the Freedom of the Will book with his own book, which he entitled On the Bondage of the Will. And it's probably his greatest work of theology, or one of them. And here, Luther argued that human nature is incovatus in se. That is, human nature is curved in on itself. He argued that our intuitive sense of complete freedom with regard to decision-making is an illusion. 
we feel free in that we always kind of do what we want. But here's the thing. He said, we cannot choose what we want. So we'll always do what we want, but we cannot choose what we want. Underneath our wills, directing and governing and limiting our choices lie our hearts with their inclinations and desires. And our hearts, scripture said, are naturally inclined away from God. God is not within the realm of what our darkened hearts want. And so we will never choose God. That's the radical nature of our sin. We choose sin because that is what we want. This is what the reformers meant by total depravity. So Luther spoke of slavery to sin or addiction, that we are like rotten trees that can only bear rotten fruit. And of course, that we are therefore powerless to save ourselves. Even our righteous works are not for God because we don't seek God, they're for us. Now it's kind of deeply depressing view of the human condition, but actually the Reformation's deep view of sin is, is rather like the proverbial ugly duckling. See, our culture hates the idea that we are rotten to the core, or that we're, we're you know, totally sinful. They would say, our culture says, that's a, that's a terrible thing to say. It's a recipe for self-hatred. And we as modern Christians might be tempted to be embarrassed of such a view and kind of abandon it or kind of sort of, sort of modify it a bit. But we mustn't ignore a true diagnosis, can we? We mustn't ignore scripture's diagnosis because only if I see that my plight is so bad that I cannot fix myself will I look outside my, myself for help and find the freedom that Christ brings. So the ugly duckling is really a swan, a new understanding of sin, but also a new understanding of grace. In medieval theology, just as uh, there was a particular view of sin, there was a particular view of grace. And in medieval theology, salvation was by grace. You know, you couldn't alone save yourself. Your sin needed to be healed and your soul helped by grace. And grace was seen as a kind of a thing uh, at work within you, a substance or a force or a, or a kind of fuel administered or imparted through the sacraments of the church, of which there were seven sacraments, baptism, holy communion, confirmation, confession, marriage, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick. So you come and receive any of those sacraments and you receive grace to kind of, to sort of as a, as a, as a sort of medicine for your sick heart or as a kind of can of spiritual Red Bull for your spiritual laziness. Or grace could be infused through prayers to the saints or to Mary, full of grace, a mistranslation in the Bible of their day. So church was a bit like a hospital with the priest, a pharmacist, dispensing grace as medicine to the poorly or grace as cans of spiritual Red Bull to the lazy. To make them righteous. Luther's growing understanding of grace, needless to say, was very, very different. Grace was not a thing at work within us, but God's unmerited favour towards us, whereby the righteousness of Jesus is gifted to us, not as stuff, this is the thing, 
not as stuff being infused into us that gradually changes our state, but as righteousness imputed, given to us, that immediately changes our status. You see the difference? Not grace as a sort of substance being kind of infused into us that gradually changes our state, but righteousness given to us that immediately changes our status before God. Our sins are not removed, as we know, any of us who are Christians. But somehow, and we'll see how in our next talk this morning, they are no longer counted against us. So justification is not about God gradually making us righteous with our kind of contribution. It is about God here and now declaring us righteous. So it's the language not so much of the hospital, but of the law courts. Justification is not a process of healing towards God, but a declaration now that we have a positive standing before God and can walk right into his loving presence. So see this again in our text, our reading that we had read for us. It should make sense. You know, you can kind of see, you can kind of go, Martin, it was obvious, wasn't it? Reading, this is what it says in the Bible. It's nothing. Verse 21. Now. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the prophets, the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You notice that it's freely given. Salvation is a gift from first to last. We do nothing. It's not our works plus the essential help of God's grace. It's salvation by grace alone. All of grace. We contribute nothing. We just receive the gift by faith, by simple trust, which itself is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone two applications as we finish and then a trailer for the next talk so that you don't go back to bed so two applications why the reformation still matters firstly no contribution no contribution imagine um, if an artist gives you one of her paintings framed and ready to hang in your house and before you do, you proceed to break open the frame and get a biro to add a bit of shading to the sky. Or imagine if you're invited to a dinner party and uh, the meal is served to you and you kind of take your plate back to the kitchen to do a bit more work on the sauce. You know, no. 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 Not even in Hampstead. When you are given something as a finished completed gift the creator has laid down her paintbrush has removed his apron and said this cannot be improved on it is not only needless but offensive to attempt your own contribution well salvation is a gift from first to last it has to be because of who we are because there is nothing that you or I can do to contribute and in fact to seek to make a contribution is to undermine the finished work of God. If you like, to add is to subtract. 
This is why the reformers always said that faith and grace had to be alone. Faith has to be alone, just simple faith. And yet, of course, we do do this. We're so medieval. We do treat grace like a substance that assists our efforts. We do think that God favours us when we've read our Bibles and prayed, or because we're a good person, we do noble things, or we're moral, or we went to church this Sunday. You know, we got some grace. And we do think still that God frowns on us when we're bad. Don't you catch yourself thinking, you know, oh, I don't really deserve that God should take any interest in me today because I haven't been a very good Christian of late. As if we ever deserved anything, anything from God, as if it wasn't all of grace. You know, by nature, we're predisposed to reject grace in favour of our works because of our innate pride. You see, if salvation is all of grace, then all of the glory must go to God. We'll think about that tomorrow morning. But of course, we are naturally prone to want to exalt ourselves. Surely it is really about me, my contribution. God likes me when I'm good. He doesn't when I'm bad. But no, actually, it's not about us. It's all about God and his free grace towards needy, undeserving sinners. So no contribution humbles us. But of course, it is the most wonderful news, which leads us to our second application. No contribution, no condemnation, no condemnation. Imagine that you owe a huge amount of money. Uh, you've somehow run up a debt that you can never repay. And to your shame, it has been discovered. And you stand before the judge, helpless. You know that your debt means your life is ruined, that your family is ruined, that you will spend the rest of your life in debtor's prison for the rest of eternity. Imagine how you feel suicidal, utterly helpless. Then, imagine that your debt is suddenly cancelled completely. It no longer exists. It no longer hangs over you. It's gone. It's completely gone. There's nothing to pay. The world has changed. Everything has changed. You can barely believe it. How would you feel? There's a consistent testimony down through the years that those who have accepted that God saves by grace alone have found that message to be one of unutterably sweet liberation. So listen to Martin Luther himself on his discovery of grace alone. He says, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise, paradise itself through open gates. Or William Tyndale, speaking of the gospel of grace as merry, glad, and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Or John Bunyan, the 17th century author of Pilgrim's Progress, on discovering that righteousness was a gift of God and not of himself, he exclaimed, Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my affliction. My chains fell off, wrote John Wesley in his famous hymn. My heart was free 
I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, complete, finished, done. Only message of true liberation that has the power to make human beings unfurl and flourish. Now, after coffee, in why the Reformation still matters. Sorry. Um, a couple of questions, fundamental questions remain. Firstly, how is this possible? How does it work that God can just give us righteousness and count it as ours, as if righteousness is some kind of thing? You know, it feels very abstract. You know, something just kind of made up. And as such, it might create some doubts in our minds. You know, you know, God sees me as righteous because Jesus is righteous. Doesn't he just see Jesus as righteous? And he knows that I'm not. So am I right in God's eyes? It just feels all a bit, you know, vague. Am I? And secondly, this grace stuff. You know, does grace mean then that sin no longer matters? You know, with salvation in the bag, might people feel we can just keep on sinning? You know, that grace may increase. After all, I like sinning, and God likes forgiving. Does the way I live really matter? Well, there is a way of understanding how God gives me righteousness. And the way we live as Christians really does matter. And the answer to both those questions will be seen in our next talk, and our next solar of the Reformation. Salvation is not a legal abstract transaction. Salvation is in Christ alone. So, see you after coffee.